The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Silicon Valley is getting squeezed by new policy restrictions. At the same time, a trade war is looming between the United States and China that could throw investment into disarray. How is the startup hub holding up? And Indian state lenders are losing their CEOs at a rapid rate. Some are retiring, some are under investigation. New candidates are hardly flocking to replace them. Is running these banks into the ground part of the government's plan? That's what we're going to talk about on this week's Views Room. A weekly conversation amongst Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I am your host, Pete Sweeney. I'm sitting here in Hong Kong chatting with Robin Mock, who has literally just returned from sunny California. Robin, thanks for joining us. I know the jet lag is rough, having experienced it myself, but we just could not wait to hear uh, your insights from your visit. There's been a lot of chatter on how this trade war is going to play out, how Trump is going to play out, you know, how all these policy changes regarding the usage of private data is going to play out for capitalists and startups in, in Silicon Valley. What's the feeling on the ground like? Hi, Pete. Yeah, so I just got back from San Francisco and Silicon Valley, um, you know, and I spent, you know, most of last week visiting startups, VCs, banks, um, you know, and all sorts of people. And surprisingly, actually, the U.S.-China tensions haven't really trickled down. So people there on the ground are still genuinely very excited and optimistic about, you know, opportunities in China. Um, there's still a lot of activity, you know, between, um, you know, from Chinese investments and foreign investments going into the area and vice versa. So it's it's actually a very different uh, view of, you know, what's happening in Washington and Beijing. I mean, what about this pushback, you know, you're seeing in Europe and now with this new law in California about data? I mean, I know a lot of money has gotten raised based on these apps, you know, being able to analyze data and collect user data and and. You know, there's been obviously a bunch of backlashes. How's that being seen? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, companies like Facebook, so the bigger companies, you know, clearly they are um, quite affected uh, by this backlash and sort of these coming regulatory changes. Um, you know, so Facebook, they have, you know, their content monitors and, and they're becoming, you know, more transparent when it comes to, you know, what their policies are in terms of data sharing um, and content. Um, but the startups, I think, in and of itself, they're still OK. I mean, they're not, um, you know, they're, they're not 100 percent affected by many of these uh, new rules. But, you know, they are sort of taking it in stride. I mean, it was a selling point, right? You could you could raise funds based on an idea that you're going to get all this user data and you didn't have to charge. I mean, I know it's been a big thing in China, just like, well, we're just going to have a huge user base and like we're not going to charge because we can we can resell this stuff on. I mean, so it's interesting. And it kind of plays into another thing that's going on, which is which is art, artificial intelligence. Um, you know, is is that where the smart money is going these days? Yeah, absolutely. So the buzz right now is um, AI applications in the life sciences and healthcare space. So maybe two years ago, there was a lot of hype and buzz surrounding autonomous driving um, and smart cars and whatnot. So this time, it seems to be uh, medical devices, diagnostics, so analyzing, you know, everyday uh, healthcare data and trying to manage health and, you know, even diagnose diseases and things like that. 
but I liked autonomous cars. <laughs> are we not going to? Uh, and I wanted the flying autonomous car as well. Are we not? Were, Silicon Valley is giving up on that, or they're just no, not raising not, money anymore? It's not giving up, but I think you know there was a rush of money going into that area, you know, one or two years ago. Now it seems like the money is moving towards healthcare uh, mm. and medical devices. Um, and the feeling is that, you know, countries like China and India, you know, there is some sort of natural advantage there just because of the sheer number of patients, of medical data, um, of hospitals um, in those countries. Yeah, well, and privacy laws are still, like, regarding data are a little bit still under forming in China, as I understand. So, I mean, but, but certainly this kind of plays into and how easily it will be for companies to, to crunch this, this data, especially health data, which is super sensitive. I mean, in the, in the states, regulatory-wise, like is, that, is that an area where the government is, is, is making it easier or harder than China? Well, the Chinese government is certainly pushing to make that healthcare data more available uh, to hospitals, to clinics, to researchers. So it's, you know, if you are a foreign company um, outside of China, um, so, for example, if you have, you know, your core engineers and talent in the U.S., um, it's very easy for you to sort of write some sort of prototype and then go to countries like India and China and sort of test out your algorithms um, and use that data set, which is what, you know, quite a lot of companies are doing now. And, of course, you know, ch- uh, Chinese companies in China itself, they have access to huge, you know, database of, you know, medical data, patients, things like that as well. I mean, the flip side of it is, I mean, and, and there's been tons of money going into AI in, in China. Um, you know, obviously the government has made it this huge priority. A lot of it appears to be going, well, I mean, obviously someone's going to health, but a lot is going into security and facial recognition and kind of Orwellian stuff like that. But one of the questions that or points it was made to me was that like AI is built by engineers and this is where China is actually has a shortage. You don't just kind of like get a two year degree in, in artificial intelligence. You need eight, 16, whatever many years of education to learn how to crunch this. And that's kind of the interest that China has right. in Silicon Valley. Right. So like, the so core AI talent is still in Silicon Valley. Um, there's a huge crop emerging in cities like Toronto where you know, they've invested quite a lot in AI research institutes. Um, but that's slowly starting to change. Um, first of all, it's because a lot of the AI talent, um, you know, if you look at, you know, the education, the doctorates, mm. a lot of them are actually Chinese or foreign students in the U.S. Sure. And that's starting to change because a lot of these foreign uh, educated, um, you know, talent is slowly moving back to China where, you know, there are... Um, you know, more opportunities. There's huge demand now for this type of things. There's lots of money going into the sector and companies in China. So they are, you know, poaching quite a lot of talent from, you know, the U.S. Well, and isn't this a place where the trade war actually is going to kind of aggravate like this kind of separation? I mean, the Trump administration is is apparently going to be looking harder at the visas for, you know, Chinese and Indian talent, for example, that, you know, makes up such a huge portion of the H-1B lab visas, you know. Um, and then, you know, there's the idea that you're there's also and it goes in both directions, right? Because China is also making it harder to share data. It's not going to be able to take any of the Chinese data out to analyze it across the border. Right. Yeah, I think so. so I think, you know, these risks, you know, are clearly it's, it's sort of growing in the background. But, you know, if you sort of look at the big picture, you know, there still is a lot of talent, money, 
business moving across the borders. And it's, you know, very difficult, you know, to just put an end to all of that all of a sudden. Well, just more generally, I'm, I'm interested in the macroeconomic moment. I know this is hard to kind of quantify, but you're talking about all the money flying around. So, I mean, we had autonomous driving. You know, these are also areas where you had this huge flood of Chinese money flowing in. But I mean, the thing that's, you know, we've been in this long cycle of governments printing money, um, including the Chinese government, just throwing money at stuff. And now, like, you know, interest rates are coming up in the States. The Chinese government seems to be a little bit worried about, you know, financial risk. I know, like, there's tons of money going to AI, but, like, there was a recent report by a Chinese research, IEO, um, that <laughs> it's not pronounced IEO, which sounds sad, uh, that was saying that most of these guys are just kind of going, losing a bunch of money. I mean, is there a risk here that there's a bubble because of this enthusiasm? Yeah, I think there's definitely a risk. But at the same time, you have to realize that, you know, being, um, you know, number one, so to speak, in AI and in tech is, you know, has become a really, really top priority for the Chinese government. And they are investing, you know, huge sums into developing their own, you know, high tech industries. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a state priority for a lot of people, obviously. Thanks so much for talking, Robin. I'm Clara Ferreira Marquez in Singapore, and today I'll be talking with my fellow columnist Una Galani about India's zombie bank problem. Now, state lenders are a huge part of the system in India. They account for 70% of deposits. But all is not well in Indian finance. There's $150 billion of bad debt, plus arrested bosses and corruption investigations. Of 21 state lenders, half face restrictions on lending, and half will soon be without a CEO. Una, this looks like a huge mess. To quote Oscar Wilde, to lose one banking chief may be regarded as misfortune, but to lose 11 looks like carelessness. What's going on here? You know, to understand what's happening, we have to rewind. I think, you know, just a few years ago, the politicians and the tycoons were applying lots of pressure on these banks to lend in various ways to big ambitious projects, which they did. Then the music stopped, growth tailed off, and the banks were left with a ton of bad debt. So the regulator has forced the banks to recognize these, which has made the bad loan numbers look truly horrible. And the politicians, you know, have been left looking for a scapegoat because essentially this is all taxpayers' money because these are state-controlled banks. So as a result, as you said, half of the banks without are now with lending restrictions. You know, one bank chief was arrested last week. Another was stripped of her powers a couple of months ago. Um, and, you know, charges have been brought against those who have already retired. So... You know, there's very much a climate of a witch hunt at the moment. And in that context, it's not really a surprise that good people don't want these jobs. Isn't India supposed to have had a bit of a talent revolution, bringing in private talent at the mid-level and right at the top? I mean, what happened with that experiment? And is that still an option at all? You know, it, it did. It A few years ago, it was really all very promising. You know, New Delhi said it wanted to professionalize the banks. They brought in a former Citibank man to lead one of the largest state lenders. Um, but that's all they did. You know, the other appointments didn't follow for whatever reason. And now uh, this uh, Citibank guy who's, who's now, who, who runs Bank of Baroda, his term is about to end. And he's touted to go back to the private sector to lead one of the large banks there, Axis Bank, which has like a market cap that's four times as large and where his salary could be 20 times higher. So, you know, now you can't find a single person in the private sector who would even entertain the idea of being a public sector bank CEO. I mean, the city guy 
you know, Bank of Baroda is really lucky to have survived three years without a scandal so far. Um, the risk reward ratio is just not it's not very it's not very favourable. If we have that problem in terms of staffing, well, what about a, a more radical approach, privatisation, basically? I mean, the Modi government, as you point out in your piece for us, has been a lot more daring than most here. What's, what's stopping them from taking a step further with the banks? Well, I mean, well, privatisation is a sort of a funny idea in India, which is a country that still has a socialist mindset. So, um you know, you can see this apparent decision by the government to let the state banks rot as a kind of privatization of the industry by stealth, because effectively what you're doing is you're letting the big, large private banks like the giant HDFC bank, you know, $80 billion market cap, you know, trading on four times book, you know, let these guys grow fast, eventually claim half of the market instead of the 30% share that they have today. Um, but the real privatization you know, Modi hasn't been averse to the idea. They have tried to privatize a bank and their national carrier Air India in, in the last couple of years, but they've just failed to get any buyers. Now we're too close to a general election for that to happen. So we're just going to have to wait and see if that comes and if that happens in a new term. What about this, This again, a fairly radical idea that you bring out in your piece, which isn't not just privatization, but bringing in some of India's successful tycoons waiving the restrictions that have held them back. Is, is that a solution that is, is is being contemplated realistically? It's a radical idea. Yeah, you're right. It's a radical idea. Um, uh, and it's as controversial as privatization, but it's possibly more workable. I mean, it's a, it is a type of privatization, right? I mean, it's radical because, you know, the tycoons have played this big role in contributing to the banking mess. Um, and other ideas that the government has had, like merging the weak lenders with stronger state ones, you know, that seems more and more unworkable the more of these banks that end up in trouble. And, you know, that, that's happening quite quickly. So, you know, the reality is in India, there are still quite a good number of tycoons that are are, are unsullied as such, you know, the Tatas, the Beerlers. Mahindra, Bajaj, they're all big names and they, they have experience in finance too. And so these kind of current rules that we have in place today, they mean people like Uday Kotak, and he's the Asia's richest banker, actually. Um, you know, he has to reduce his stake in his own Kotak Mahindra bank to from 30% to 15% by 2020. Now, you know, if you kind of get rid of those rules and you let tycoons have skin in the game, then, you know, that might end up delivering a better result because, you know, we just haven't been able to get that from the state lenders so far. Well, uh, there's certainly big implications from this crisis, both for India and for the rest of Asia and the world. So uh, we'll watch this space. Thank you very much, Una. Thank you, Clara. And that's our show for this week. I'd like to thank Robin, Yuna, and Clara for joining me. Uh, kudos also to our producers, Sharon Lam, Freddie Joyner, Ben Kellerman, and Andrew D'Antonio. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. Please do share your opinions about our show with us. And join us again next week for another edition. Thanks. Thanks.